Today's podcast features an MLB player, an MLB All-Star, an Olympian, a national team coach, an Australian Sports Hall of Fame inductee, an Australian Institute of Sport assessment designer, and an Order of Australia Medal Honoree. No, this isn't a panel. Amazingly, this is one person, David Nelson. You might remember Dave, or Dingo as he is affectionately known, as a catcher for the 1990s Milwaukee Brewers, crushing baseballs with regularity as one of only a handful of Australians to make it to the top rung of baseball's professional world, his play earning him a coveted all-star selection in 1999. What you are about to hear and gain insight to is a man separated from the pack. You're also about to hear from a unicorn of sorts, a coach who understands the power of data-driven physical systems modeling. One like us, super excited to see the unfolding process of the Human Kinesome Project. David leverages critical analysis in all he does. He has an ability to see around corners in both systems and team development, while using this same skill set to tactically and strategically manage a rapidly emerging team on the world stage. How do I know this? Well, I'm not only the Vice President of Performance for Kinetics, but I'm also David's Chief Mechanic as Head of Performance for the Australian Men's National Team. On the day of this recording, David and I were scheduled to be in Puebla, Mexico, with the Australian baseball team as the top seed for the final Tokyo Olympic Qualification Tournament. Two weeks prior, however, a decision was made to withdraw from the Tokyo Games due to player health and safety precautions and post-event functionally impossible transit logistics. This decision to withdraw crushed the final Olympic dreams for many of Australia's baseball athletes. We discussed the raw feelings of that decision and how a focus on moving forward is the only process now possible for the nation's sport and the multidimensional man at its helm. David, welcome to the Human Kinesome Project podcast. Yeah, my pleasure, mate. It's, it's good to catch up. We always, uh, our conversations always go in interesting places, so I'm looking forward to it. Mate, a lot of people don't know that Australia pulled out of an Olympic Games uh, qualification mm. tournament with baseball. And right now, you and I shouldn't be on this podcast. We would more likely be in Mexico having a good dinner somewhere with a couple of Dos Equis talking about you know, how we're going to approach this tournament. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, mate. I'm not sure about the good dinner, but we'd definitely be there. We would be in game mode and we'd be preparing the athletes and trying to qualify for that last spot in Olympic Games. You know, we're, we're currently ranked sixth in the world, so we're in a very good position. We would have been the highest ranked team at that tournament. So as far as rankings go, uh, we probably would be the favourites. I think for people in the world of sport and baseball, it's probably difficult for them to get their head around that. You know, Australia would be ahead of most teams from South America or Latin America. So I understand that. But yeah, it's it's been unfortunate and, and just uh, COVID's got the best of it. You had to make the announcement to the team that we were withdrawing from Olympic qualification. So that crushes guys, some of our older players on our team. Their Olympic dreams get lost at that moment in time. How hard was that for you? To deliver that information. Oh, yeah, no, that was incredibly hard. The the really the the four to six week period leading up to that conversation was was it wasn't what I signed up for. 
when you know when I want to be national coach. It, yeah. it definitely um, is a new experience, and in the background, trying to prepare the players for a world performance, but also knowing out to the side here that there's a, a real chance we won't be able to attend. You know, we had to work very hard to try and find ways to get to Taiwan. People around uh, around the world don't understand homeland security in Australia and all the restrictions we have and the, the limited flights due to airlines shutting down and not coming here and, you know, limited people allowed back into the country and everything involved. So at the same time, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get athletes ready, but, but really seeing, you know, the tsunami of trouble happening and they shut down the Taiwan event, which we, was going to be difficult for us to get there. Then, then they, they requested us to be in Mexico City, the other side of the world you know, two weeks later, two or three, whatever it was. And it was just a mountain too high for us, you know, logistically, um, but also risk to risk to the athletes, which was, you know, the main reason. There's a whole lot of reasons which on that call you're aware of, but but really um, just some, some insurmountable obstacles. One of the things I think I was most proud of as you were leading some of the decisions around that move uh, with Glenn Williams, our pretty much brand new chief executive officer in baseball. He used the term with the media, it was gut-wrenching. And while it was, and I was on that call, um, one of the things that I was proud of was the fact that player health and safety was the lead decision-making factor in everything that we did. On the note of Olympics, you made a decision kind of at the peak of your playing career to leave Major League Baseball and go to an Olympic Games representing Australia. Mate, unpack that decision for me, the difficulty of that or the ease of that decision. How tough was that one? Yeah, look, I don't have enough time to really unpack it all. I'll try to keep to the, to the main point. Uh, after, the, after the 99 MLB season, I was a free agent. And, um, you know, years before Australia, Sydney had been announced as the home for the Olympics and baseball was in the Olympics. And so, so I think at the time there was just I was an easy, easy discussion point during the '99 season. I made the All Star game, and yep. I remember leading up to that just a, a lot of press. And again, we didn't have social media back then. It, it, it was, it was, it was yeah. press. So, so really, if something was in the paper, it, re- it was really strong. There was no way to to retort it or to have a different side to it. So, whatever was said on the TV or was in the paper it was, it was one-way traffic as far as getting people to think so yeah. i was copying a lot of flack leading up into the all-star game you know there was a, a, a there was a cover story with me on sports illustrated and um you know a big part of the story was would i wouldn't i and i can honestly say i can honestly say it wasn't my story i remember um you know managers from other teams being vocal in the paper how could he do this mm. how could he do that and and I remember just answering questions and, and just re- really, you know, I kind of liken it to being in the eye of the storm. It was very calm for me. I mean, there was, there was, mm. it was just a very calm, it wasn't an issue. But around me, there was just chaos everywhere. Yeah. There was, yeah. you know, and, and it, it, it sort of took a life to its own. And even, even through the All-Star game, that, that was unfortunately a bit of a, a focal point. You know, a lot of questions, how could you do this? And, yep. and, and really, you know, you know me, Garen was slightly introverted, so... You know, I don't feel the need to defend defend myself all the time. So, probably in a world with no social media and, and being the way I am, I just, you know, I just really didn't respond to most stuff. And and so it took a pretty big took a pretty big life of its own. You know, and, and then we rolled through. We we played an international event late '99 after the season. Yeah. We won a gold medal. That was exciting. 
And then through the free agent process of going back to Major League Baseball, which I was 100%, 100% tracking towards yeah. through the off-season, it had become it had become very clear to me that that through all the media, um, a lot of organizations had doubt about my commitment, had doubt about you know would would he do this? And it really wasn't my story. So as as that off season went on, out of left field, so to speak, is an offer from Japan uh, came came about. And uh, at the previous two thousand Olympics, Japan were disappointed. They had. They, uh, I don't think they performed how they wanted to, and so they had determined to send some some uh, major leaguers, maybe not their best ones, and and they were going to allow athletes to take time off of off of the Olympics. So they reached out to me, and um, just a bit of a perfect storm happened, and it allowed me to continue to play professionally, allow me to you know play in a different part of the world, which is which was a learning experience, which has really been foundational to you know, where this conversation is going to go today. And, yeah. but also, but also allowed me to, to represent my country in a home Olympics. And, uh, you know, growing up in Australia, it's very difficult for people to understand what that means and, and what it means to be Olympian. And, you know, you kind of compare it. I don't know if it's a good comparison, but it's like a, it's like a baseball player when he's older saying, yeah, I played in the world series. You know, that's, yeah. that's kind of the, the, the relevance of it. And, and to be an Olympian, um, was really important to get my family, allow my family to see me play there. So it lined up really quickly. And, and, and that was, you know, regardless of what was said in the media and how it was portrayed, that was what went down. So once, once I made that decision, I just went full steam ahead. One of the things you and I touched on early in one of our meetings was I'd moved to the U.S. and learned the business of sports and elite sports performance here in North America and learned that through working with 21 NFL teams, 17 NBA teams, multiple major league teams, having spent seven years you know, as a strength and conditioning coach in two organizations. One of the things that I always, in contrast, would compare back to Australia, I'd say one of the things that really irritates me is how there's almost a fan-based approach to mediocrity. And I remember saying to you and talking about Australia's silver medal win in an Olympic Games, that moment of like, okay, celebrating silver versus knowing you lost gold. And it was that knowing you lost gold, where that pain was emanating from in that gold medal loss, I think it was to Cuba, correct? Um, That gold medal loss, does that still permeate with you today? Are you still on that? Do you still have that mindset today? Or, you know, with the past few years of being the national team coach, is that waned any? Or is that still the thing that keeps you up at night? No, no, it doesn't. It hasn't waned any. I think I just now have a vehicle where I can probably get some of the emotion out a little bit. I have athletes I can work with and talk through and, and sort of um, recalibrate their thought processes around where we should finish and how we should perform and, and what we're capable of. So that was a, a unique experience in my whole life, especially playing in the major leagues for as long as I did, where every day is about win, win, win. Everything you do is win, win, win. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'm in this event which i truly appreciated i mean it was it was remarkable and 25 minutes after the game we just lost yeah on one side of my brain i knew i had to be really happy i just won silver medal i I knew this is really unique this is going to stick with me but on the other side um the side that i've been trained in for so long was it was demoralizing and i remember looking around the locker room and i wasn't you know in, in probably the best frame of mind and seeing the, the, the utter joy and the 
celebrations of going on and then knocking on the door and someone saying, hey, you guys need to get changed for the ceremony to get your medals. And it was, so I, I had to make this conscious decision that I'm not going to be the Grinch. I just need to smile and wear it. And, you know, and, yeah. um, you know, once all the, once all the ceremonies started, it was really easy to, yeah. to, it was really easy to, to, to understand what we'd achieved. But in that initial moment, yeah, it was really, it was really challenging. And, yeah. and I think that's, that's helped me and it's worked for me. What people don't know about Australia, there was a point in time, people would ask me, you know, what are the, you know, when I was in the US, what are the biggest exports you've ever had as Australia when people didn't understand what Australian was? And I'd go to, okay, there's two crocodile fellas. There's Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> there's the Crocodile Hunter. There's two brilliant bands, ACDC and NXS. The next one on my list was David Nilsson. We've got an all-star that's played in Major League Baseball. So it was wonderful for me, even when we won that silver medal, or lost the gold, depending on the optic, right? <laughs> but to watch that from afar, I mean, that was important. And it's been something like you mentioned. We are ranked sixth in the world in this sport with no resources and no player talent to really pull from. All our all our athletes go into these other sports like Australian rules football, rugby, uh, to cricket, which is the big bat and ball sport there. How difficult has that been, like, in terms of player identification for a national team? You don't have a lot to choose from. And, and you've got to get the best you can out of a very small pool and compete internationally. How hard is that? You know, I, I like to look at it as it's a real strength of ours. For the Premier 12 or even for the Olympic qualifier, um, I really only had about 60, if I'm to be extremely generous, 70 players to choose from That's, that, that yep. are capable about that level. So I'm talking good single-A players, you know, double A, triple yeah. A, you know, we don't have many, if any, ex-big leaguers. So you compare that to other nations we're up against who have tens yeah. of thousands of athletes to choose from. So, mm. but what, what I've identified and what I, what I really think is the case, Australian have good athletes. So that, that's never been, that's never been questioned in, in all sports. We, we excel. Um, our, our government has an institute of sport. We're a sporting nation and we're basically raised to be good at sport. So the athletes that we have in the game are good athletes and, and they're, they're committed to it. But I think the one strength we have is is with that really small player group, we actually get to build a team. We get to build um, a process. We get to build right. an environment where, you know, and I use, I use the Premier 12 and other events I've been in, is, mm. is we, weren't, we weren't a group of athletes coming together for the first time trying to figure each other out. I'd probably coached some of these guys 10 or 15 years ago and this group had been playing against each other for anywhere from five to 10, um, some of them 20 years. So us coming together and and learning to be a team and being on the same page, that's just natural. That's one of our strengths. And that's one thing that that I think we tap into and I've I've really tried to tap into. So, and and on on the other hand, you have the other other big nations, you you take Team USA and, and it's taken them a while to really... You look at the WBC, the Major League Baseball. It took them four goes around, sixteen years to yeah. to figure out how to build the team. And and Jim Leland come in, and he didn't. He just picked the right guys that he thought were good for the team. Right. Um, and I think I think that's our strength is that we 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 have the athletes for a long journey, and you know have a chance. Going on the world stage is difficult, and yes. and with our athletes, we have experience. We get to build up that database of of experience and information of what that's like. So that's our strength. No doubt. And the journey through Premier 12 was 
amazing. And to be a part of that with you and the rest of the coaching staff, there were two moments that happened in our first round competition in Korea that I remember that were not polarizing, but talk about different ends of the spectrum. We had a loss to Cuba and we had a team meeting. And it was the first time I think I might, might have seen you toss a chair or toss some expletives out at the uh, discussion and you could have heard a pin drop. And then 24 hours later, we beat Canada to go through to the second round. And I'll never forget that meeting, which was, we all had tears in our eyes because it was that moment where the men's Australian senior team had leveled up. Take me through that 24 hours. Was there much sleep? Um, yeah, look, I, yeah, look, I always sleep pretty well away from the field, but I, you, you know, it, it weighed on me. It really weighed on me and it wasn't, it wasn't planned that meeting after we lost it. It definitely wasn't yep. planned. I, I, I went into the players locker room with the intent to encourage them. Right. Um, and with the intent to point out a few attitudes that I'd heard earlier in the day that. I thought weren't conducive to a successful team. And and I think for those that know me and have been around me for an extended period of time, realize uh, I'm a pretty level keel guy, regardless of what people yeah. think. But um, yeah, when I blow, I kind of blow. And when, when I go, I go. Um, and, and I pop the cork. And, um, and I felt it was necessary to reset the environment. You know, they... Yeah. We, we had been knocking on the door for a long time and I just think to to have success on the world stage, you need to have everything working. Every part of the fabric of the team needs to be trying to achieve the same thing. And we just, uh, we, we had to play the next day to, to, to you know, stay alive. And and it was really risky, you know, and, and, and we talk about Glenn Williams, the CEO, at the time he was a general manager, had been the general manager of Team Australia, and yeah. we rode in the car together after the game and we got back to the hotel and I asked him to stay back and I just said, Glenn, I, I need you to support me here. And I just shared with him, man, I, ha- I had to do that. I had to reset the, you know, the, the, the temperature in the room and he was totally supportive and that really gave me strength. And... But also at the time, Gary, I, I knew that as a new coach, that could have been that that could have gone either way. If, if we right. didn't win the next day and if we didn't qualify, I mean that could have been my job right there. You know, right, that could have been. You could have you could have had a lot of people, you know, saying a lot of different things about uh, my leadership just because of that one moment. But as as it worked out, it was a good moment and it yeah. propelled us and we moved forward and we had to we had the big victory the next day for against Canada, which put us into the top six, the second round of the tournament. And as you mentioned, the, the meeting after that was was um, radically different, to say the least. You know, after we won, there was a lot of emotion and, and a lot of um, tears, which which were just out of the blue. They were a lot of yeah. built-up, I think, energy over a long period of time for a lot of different people and a lot of reward for athletes who for a decade... Uh, had been on the team and could never get to that second round or could never get that big victory, you know. So the second meeting was more just about, you know, congratulating them and, and just, mm. um, you know, enjoying our time and moving forward. It was transformative in many ways because at the coal face, and 
I'm, you know, my role, I'm with them in prep and recovery. And so I get the, I get the offshoots of that in the recovery session. I get the next day, you know, coming in and getting those athletes ready to go. I can tell you, it was a significant difference preparing for team Canada and the energy that was in that dugout for team Canada. And that kind of carried on to our second round. And one of the, one of the most amazing moments for Australian baseball was to beat Team USA on this national stage. And it was a moment that as a dual citizen and being able to move around um, US baseball and MLB and, and in the round friends I have that are with Team USA, uh, you gave me bragging rights here for, for a good the last 18 months. I've had those bragging rights. All of a sudden we were leading the sports section news on various newspapers in various states in Australia. So that was a moment that, you know, all of a sudden the media is picking up on us. One of the best moments for me, and I don't want to sound arrogant, so I won't say who this conversation was with, but um, I ran into one of the members of Team USA and he's like very congratulatory. God, you guys did so well against us today, but nothing for nothing. We didn't have any data on your athletes. And I turned around right away and said, um, well, are you talking about data like hitting charts and spray charts on the hitters? Are you looking at pitching charts? Yeah, we didn't. He goes, it was probably our fault because we had a quick turnaround. We had the day game after the night game, but we should have been better at that. I said, well, let me tell you something. I said, you probably had data on our second baseman and our center fielder who were both, you know, for our listeners, they were both in professional baseball in the United States, uh, both playing A-ball, but they didn't have any data on any of the other players. And I turned around and said, yeah. I said, I think he's an assistant um, like a, replacement school teacher is the pitcher that, uh, that threw against you today. I said, um, the guy at third base who made some phenomenal plays is a street sweeper. I said, our right field is a fireman. I said, our, I, I said, our guys that work up the middle, I think they work, you know, one works for a towing company. The other one works in a warehouse. I said, what data were you looking for? And the faces just dropped. And they were like, hang on a minute. We got nearly $300 million worth of contracts over in there. And you're telling me that's what beat us? And I just used that team. I said, yeah, guys, nothing for nothing. I said, I know with my history in sports that a champion team will always be the team of champions. And I said, you know, and we just were coming together at that right point for a salient moment behind a game-ready pitcher in Tim Atherton that I'd never seen before. And I've still got film on my phone. When I was out in the outfield with Jim Bennett, he's on throwing flat ground. I said, it's going to be a special day. We've done a lot of work preliminarily and his eyes were just spinning he had one of those moments i just looked at jim and said it's going to be a special day so you know i remember that and remember it well and it certainly you know was is you know something that i don't know um as as an australian um incredibly proud of that moment and again when we're missing opportunities like that with going into this Olympic tournament, that that's that's kind of a sting in the contrast. The strength that we have is is while we only have you know a one percent of maybe what other nations have to choose from, we get to we get to have a journey. You know that that had started as a group at the Australian Institute of Sport. You know, 12, 18 months earlier. So we we that environment you're talking about is something that. I can build and I can maintain um, as long as we get we get to get together constantly. It's been, um, you know, the, the, the breakdown of COVID has is, is oh. been the most challenging thing is that we, we built that environment. We, we, built, we built the team. We had the victory. You know, we had some success. We created some real direction. And then 
not to be able to two months later, you know, go to the Olympic qualifier and then eventually shut down for 12 or 16 months. And, um, you know, so, so it's almost like from that experience, we, we got to start from scratch again. We need to get a group in, um, you know, there was a lot of older guys in that group that are probably going to turn over. So, um, yeah, but, but, but it really allows that, that team honesty, I think is what it is. When we made the decision and I touched base with you, I just want to see how you're doing on that decision to withdraw from uh, the Olympic qualifiers and mate, I'm fine working on the next three years. And I knew that, I knew that's what you were doing. You're just looking ahead and moving forward. But you bring us into a, a beautiful segue into the Australian Institute of Sport. When you and I were setting that up in terms of, okay, what are we going to do when we're a camp-based team in this facility, which we've got access to biomechanics labs, or we've got access to all these different things. One of the things that stood out to me is you turned around and looked at me and said, Gary, I think baseball assessment is incorrect. Because I'm, you said to me, I'm not sure how teams are still running something that I was always arguing, a 60-yard sprint for analysis on how that athlete will perform you know, running home, home to second or home to first. You know, everyone was trying to correlate against really weird stuff that had, had a long history um, in baseball as a sport. And I remember sitting down with you and, and you said, I want to change that. And without speaking to the proprietary nature of assessment in terms of what we did, which I think if Major League Baseball teams perform the same assessments we were performing, they would delineate athletes at a much different level. They would be able to see things totally differently. You had a very unique um, optic on that. Where did that come from? Yeah, I, th I think it was a long journey. I think, obviously, I played in the major leagues. I grew up in Australia, right? So I wasn't bound in any way by the right. you know, the American way to do things, the major league way to do do things in baseball. I went over there, and it was a, it was a wonderful experience being over there for, for the 15, 20 years of my life. I then at the back end, which I mentioned earlier, got to go to Japan. Yeah. And I, I got to see I got to see smaller bodies with different work ethic still performing. And and over the course of the season they would they would fade out. Uh, but I really, really admired the ability of, of the, the Japanese and the Asian players, given that they weren't these big strong athletes. Right. And I always thought that there's no reason why if, if, if the Japanese can be there and we're better athletes than them in Australia, <laughs> we should be better there. And so, and so it, a few things stood out to me there about, about the, the, the way they, they focused on and some of it was just, um, you know, military background. Yeah. Some of it was just the way they viewed the sport. Right. Um, and I really, I really enjoyed it. So I sort of, I sort of had the old mishmash together. And when, when I finished playing and started coaching, coaching in Australia, I really had the freedom to to go on a different journey and really had the freedom to look at my frustrations of when I played. Obviously I had a bit of success playing and could really I had had some good skill sets and 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 I looked at my uh, how I grew up in Australia and how I developed them. And they were they were totally different from from a North American or a Latin American uh, yeah. baseball player. You know, right. I, I grew up with just different background, limited Limited at bats, limited game time, limited this. Well, then I looked at Team Australia, and 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 I never questioned the athletes, and I never questioned our ability to perform on the world stage. Um, I never, 
I never question our ability to win on the world stage. It's just, it's just we have that ability. Um, and then you look at tournament play, which is a different beast. It's, it's you're playing a, a Friday night game, you know, Chiba, which is a suburb of Tokyo. You, you hour and a half from the hotel. You get back at one in the morning, but then you have a twelve o'clock game the next day against Mexico, mm. followed by an afternoon game against you know Chinese Taipei. The challenges in an in international tournament like a WBC or Premier 12 or Olympics, the obstacles are different from professional baseball. You have the athletes, but it's a different journey. So I wanted to make sure that that I prepared the athletes for that tournament. And to do that, I had to be very clear on what I was trying to identify. You, you can't just say we're going to be best in the world and give them nothing to, to shoot for. You have to give right. them a clear pathway on how to develop, on their performance, and, and you need to be able to use really objective baselines, objective data, to give them feedback and also right. to give a sports scientist something to work with. And and so I, I looked at all the key points that go into a tournament and that was that was where we come up with, you know, the, the, the players from Australia have the absolute ability to perform at a major league level. That there's there's no doubt about that. I don't know if they can do it for eight months a year. Right. That's that's a different they can do it for three weeks. Absolutely. You know, and, 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 right. and we showed that. So but and, and that's that's a whole different conversation. That's a whole different challenge in itself. Yeah. Why can't they do it for eight months? Um, and that's a, that's a that's a different that's a different yeah, conversation. But so so we went down to AIS and and I mapped out the different testings and the different baseline using objective data using the technology. Um, and, and again, the clear focus one was was educating the players, giving them clear times I want them to work to, which were clear times that the opposition performed to, and then having them perform that drill. Try or should I say, trying to perform that drill right. consistently at that time. And a couple of things happened is they showed they were capable, but just not consistently. Right. They were very inconsistent at that speed. And physically, they pulled up very sore. Yep. Again, when you play professional baseball, that means you got to play every day. So it, it, it exposed yeah. a level of conditioning that they didn't have. Yep. And it showed a, a practice that they didn't do on a daily basis. And that just sets that sets everyone on a different journey, right? As, as a it sports does. scientist, that set you on a completely different journey. It set them on a completely different journey. And, totally different. Yeah. And so that's what the, the intent of the AIS was. No, it was brilliant. And it navigated for me a process. And I said, okay, you know, given the data that we have, which you bring up a really good point here in terms of coupling data to movement skills for an athlete, right? So I've always looked at this and said at the very top, um, I'll go from the bottom. It's you know the emotional construct of the athlete. Then there's the cognitive abilities of the athlete. Then it's the physical systems with the athlete. Then it's technical um, skill set, and then it's the strategy. And you're involved up here at the strategy, but you at that level you have to come down into the technical side of the equation to evaluate the athletes to see if they can do what we need them to do strategically, technically every day in tournament with that i mean it brings up a good discussion to one we had in brisbane at lunch i forget that cafe we were at too that's one of my things on this podcast for people are going to think all this guy does is eat because we went to a great cafe somewhere the good egg the good egg cafe in there the uh, good egg cafe james james street market yeah Yep, and we had lunch there, and um, I wasn't working for Brisbane then. It was actually the season before I was coming over. And that's when you exposed me to this this concept of launch angle. And I was like, yeah, everyone's talking about launch angle right now in Major League Baseball and its importance in 
in scoring runs. And I'm looking at your presentation, I'm going, David, what um, version of PowerPoint did you use with this? And you go, oh yeah, whatever we had back in 2010. Well, that was 2018, I think 17, 18. And the world was just starting to talk launch angle. You were that far ahead in that discussion. The data from launch angle, how did you originally see that? Was it a relative to just simple run production? Was it an aggregate kind of purview that said, those athletes with the better launch angle are the longer sustainable athletes in Major League Baseball? Or was it your own playing experience? Because we've talked about this before, about how you would position yourself when you move to the outfield, how you would position yourself in the outfield relative to a specific hitter. That three-dimensional, now data-driven purview on move, on movement, where did that come from? Um, yeah, I, th- I, think, I think just a different experience growing up. Um, obviously, I didn't call it launch angle back then that i use different terminology you know the trajectory of the ball off the bat was yeah. the phrase i used um and i still got the presentation more scientific yeah <laughs> i think it was just a long journey i had so so i mapped it all out and and i, I was encouraged to do a presentation um, and as i started as i started getting into the coaching realm it was very clear i didn't fit in it was very clear i had playing experience and as i tried to teach in, in a way that actually made sense, um, it was very clear I didn't fit in, and there's a lot of mm. there's a lot of uh, resistance. So after trying to teach, I thought I'm going to go away, and I was encouraged to do it by by another coach. Hey, go do a presentation and and show them what you're mm. talking about. And I did that, and had a lot of success, but the barriers were too big. The barriers were too big. I was, you know, the presentation was about T work, which T's weren't you know T's weren't big at the time. It was about basically, you know, learning to walk before you can run and all the different, you know, the the different parts of the swing. And but basically, if you're going to hit the ball, is you know, why not hit it hit a double versus hitting a ground ball? And and basically, I just stripped, I just blew up all of the major league teaching, and and that was pretty much got me pushed out of the game. You know, I was too eccentric for the game, and and um, yeah, so that was it. But but as 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 the game evolved and started changing. Um, I think you know, with my profile, you know, I've always I've always been born with an ability to be able to identify systems and and patterns, and I think that's allowed me to, you know, may not be the best athlete, but it's allowed me to um, play different positions, the big leagues, get the big leagues at early age, and you know, probably from the American people, I was probably underachieving disappointment, but if they, if they probably knew the background, they probably yeah would understand what actually yeah. actually you know the fact that I could. Get to the big leagues as a 21, 22 year old catcher, you know, play outfield, do this, do all different things. Um, and, and so I just, I found myself just trying to teach the simplicity of, of what I do. How important is that? How important is it to simplify in, in terms of the essence of something as scientific, potentially as trajectory from the bat, which gets simplified down to launch angle for? fan bases and even coaches in major league baseball so I, I love sport i love every sport and one thing one thing i clearly have identified the better the athletes the better the sport the higher the level of competition two things happen is one the game is quicker it doesn't matter what sport it is the game is quicker right. and two the athletes make it look slower 
Right. That's that's just what it's a real conundrum. So when you watch yeah. when you watch the best athletes in the world, they make it look easy. They like make it look effortless. <laughs> and and so but but actually what's happening is um, they're doing it at a quicker quicker rate than anyone else can do it. And and they have a real understanding of of time. So as I look back through my careers, I had a real understanding of time. And so as I tried to simplify um, what I had to do on a baseball field, I, I kind of did it through the funnel of time. Okay, just don't worry about that. If if I can do this, then I can execute this. It doesn't matter whether it's fifty thousand or whether it's Ricky Henderson or, or you know Kenny Lowe. It doesn't matter who it is. Um, and that was kind of the way I ticked. Was was um, was really trying to simplify a process and stay within the constraint of time. And as as I you know transitioned to coaching, that's really been my coaching focus. And again, um, basically, it drove me out of the game. You know, I was sort of rejected out of the game. And and I think I said, you know, now I'm a lot more comfortable in the game. You know, because there's a different attitude within the game. I've been around the block like you have and had enough opportunity to evaluate where people are at in their own arc and in their journey. And you were ahead of your time is the way I look at it. Your coaching construct was ahead of its time. Liken it to growing up surfing, right? If you paddle out in front of the wave, you're going nowhere. If you're behind the wave, guess what? You're going nowhere. It's the wave had to catch up to you is my belief. And I think when now the pendulum has shifted so hard into the data side of the equation, especially in the sport of baseball, that it's governing a lot of the decisions and a lot of the art and humanization of the game is getting lost. A lot of the matchups are getting lost. For that reason, I want to take you back to your primary position of being a catcher. For those who don't know baseball that are listening to this, I mean, it is so unique that you are right on top of this action, (laughs) right? You're right there. You are millimeters away from getting your hand crushed by a guy swinging a bat, you have the ability to navigate and strategically operate the game from your set of eyeballs and communicate with a pitcher with this incredible artistic dance that's going on between where that ball is going to be and how that hitter squares it up. Sitting in that position, how often did you key off a hitter's tendencies, like see a small thing and communicate, this is our out pitch. This is how we'll navigate this hitter. Having that that moment-to-moment potential pivot and change in tactics. Tell me about that a little bit. Was there ever a moment in a major league game that you saw a hitter and said, well, the out pitch says this, but no, we're going this way. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the whole that's the whole point of catching, being a catcher, and that's that's something that is a learned skill. Mm. Um, you can learn the concept of what it is to catch, but until you're in there with the best best athletes and the smartest athletes in the world, right? Um, it's, it's difficult to understand at what level you have to operate. But it's about adjusting to the adjustment. And and major league hitters have the ability; they've learned the ability. They're not born with mm. the ability. They've right. learned the ability, and they've trained themselves in the ability to adjust. And right. they, they they set pitches up and they set catches up, and and you know so you have this continuum of of back and forth. Now every hitter has tendencies, and uh, the technology confirms that. So I always say to say to people now, look, we had we had data back then when I played too, um, but right. 
was subjective, <laughs> mm. and so okay. it, it led to a lot of led to a lot of discussions and a lot of arguments, a lot of disagreements. But you know, the thinking was the same in the sense of making adjustments. So, so now they use the technology to, to find holes and swings and and different patterns, and, and, and that's good. But you still have to have to have an individual who has the understanding of how to use all that technology right. and how to use all the, all the data points. But absolutely, the role of the catcher is you go out there with a the plan. You have a clear plan. You have a clear clear. Um, depending on who's pitching, his skill set, the skill set of the hitter, it changes, and then you have the the variation of the the game situation where you may intentionally do something completely different than one other situation. But but I think the 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 real strength of any top level catcher is having that ability and and the the, the trust and the guts to make that call because it is a it's a tough thing to do when you're a catcher part of a uh, major league organization you know with with the best athletes on tv packed house and you have a game plan and then you're out there and you you in the moment have to make a decision which says no i'm actually going to go a different way you know so that that's that's part of that that catcher makeup which um is unique so in um in 2013, I'm in Taiwan, I had the pleasure of working with Manny Ramirez, who I think um, could be considered one of the better right-handed hitters of uh, his era. And he would tell me stories about letting a pitcher get him out in his first at-bat, or maybe his first two at-bats, depending on the need for the game, on a slider away because he's like, I own that pitch. And I want him to throw that to me in my third at-bat because that's when the game's going to be on the line. I mean, that confidence, did you ever get to that stage as a hitter? Confidently? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Abs- absolutely. I think, I think that's, we were just talking about catching. Well, that's the tough thing about yeah. catching is you have these great hitters. And one thing that's very clear from a catching point of view is, is hitters have different approaches in different situations. There are times in the game where you can get them out a certain way and they'll let you get them out a certain way, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in key situations, you're not going to get them out that way. So so they're very difficult. Um, I know that makes it sound really simple. Um, it's not a simple process. No. Um, but, but the toughest thing about the whole pitching, catching, getting hitters out is, is they adjust, they guess, and, and, and you have to try to guess what they're thinking, you know. And, right. um, you know, so many times as a catcher I've failed that and, and um, <laughs> it doesn't matter what you're thinking. You just play right into their trap. Mate, it's a dance. And sometimes the music stops when you least expect it, right? And uh, you got to find mm. a chair. Mate, put your, put your scouting hat on for me. So you've, you've, um, tell us about your role with the Milwaukee Brewers in Australia as a scout. And then what I want to unpack is how you perceive movement, the way an athlete moves in scouting. I'm very fortunate. I, I have a real, it's a minimal role for Brewers. I just really keep track of all the young players coming through and keep an eye out for them and keep them up to date with, with the athletes that are here. So it's a minimal role. But, you know, but, but back to the question is, is athletes, depending on their position, you know, position players, you know, you, they have to have good lateral movement. You know, they have to have that ability to control the core. You're trying to project them to the top where the game's really quick, they have to have a, a, a base athleticism about them. And it's crystal ball gazing, but you have to be able to project them to to be able to operate at that level. You know, you have to be able to project that if they do this or if they do that, 
they can play the game at that level, whether it's hitting, whether it's defense or or whatever it is. Um, you know, so from a pitching point of view, it's a, it's a little bit easier because, you know, you have the technology and they got velocities and spin rates, which is just objective data. Um, you'd look for you look for long limbs. You look for healthy bodies, healthy bodies that can be built upon to sustain the marathon of the major league season, which is it's it's a marathon, but you're doing explosive rotational activities on a daily basis. No other sport, no other sport do you experience that sort of output on a daily basis over an extended period of time with limited to no rest. You know, you you look at their skill sets, you look at their ability to hit, you look at their ability to throw, and all the different movements, base baseball movements. But you're really trying to find a body that can sustain itself over a long period of time. You said something a short time ago that was incredibly evident to me, and in like I think my first week of working with you with the Brisbane Bandits. At the time, I think he was eight years old. Your son Eli was running around playing with kids who are like under 15, 15 year old kids and outskilled them. So I immediately was looking at him and he would like talk about 10,000 hours, mate. I think he gets that in a weekend of, of uh, baseball <laughs> activity, right? Um, this kid never puts the, would never put the bat down, love him to death. He was our bat boy. Yeah. But, you know, between games of a double header, he's out there throwing a the ball around. I was like, man, does he ever stop, right? It was amazing. No. But no. watching him, you said something that I immediately went into this quantification point of trunk stiffness or you said ability to manage core, right? I looked at that. That uniquely set him apart for me as an eight-year-old with kids who were of a higher level than that. And we were taking that knowledge and that learning and having that discussion and taking it forward into planning, even for our national team with older athletes who are elite, that center of axis, that axis of rotation, you nailed it. I mean, rotational performance in baseball is critical. This is akin to being able to slam the door consistently. If that middle hinge is broken on the door, mate, you ain't slamming it too well consistently, right? It's that middle hinge. Is that something you've looked at in players now uh, and said, yeah, look, the way they manage their trunks specifically for this rotational sport, not only specific to the action but can they do that repeatedly is that something you're focused on again going back to my journey you know i had very varying different athletic stages of my journey i had a lot of injuries and probably the core wasn't a consistent strong point of my athleticism not not that i didn't pay effort to it not that i didn't pay attention to it but I had I had um, a day and night different outputs, yeah. depending on how my my core was working. I can only speak to my own experiences. That sometimes I felt like a world class athlete, and sometimes my body just couldn't couldn't do it. And I attribute it to you know, my core for a lot of different reasons. A lot of doing the right exercises and or doing the wrong exercises. And, and again, so I I, I often. And looking back at my experiences, and, and I can see where where I got it wrong. It wasn't through lack yeah. of um, effort. It wasn't through lack of desire. It wasn't through lack of research. It was just I got it wrong. Um, right. and I had different outputs. So, um, you know, and it's, pro- it's probably probably the best way to summarize it is, you know, when I was working out or when I was doing exercises, 
instead of activating muscles to stabilize the core, I would just counterbalance. I'd counterbalance and that would activate the wrong muscles. Right. You know, so I definitely think it's it's um, it's teachable. It's mm-hmm. but it's it's all part of what you're talking about. So um, I couldn't actually couldn't agree more with what you're saying. Um, I think it's an untapped space, and I look forward to following your journey because I think there's there's you know we're speaking the same language. No question. Obviously, you're not gonna you're not gonna see a tight core in me. It's not my <laughs> it's not my natural position. Right. <laughs> you know, I you know I um you know I just don't get that two hours a day in the gym. So. Sure. Some of the most respected sports performance people that I've had the opportunity to work with, one of them is Alex McKechnie, who is a Canadian, uh, Scottish, works in Canada with the Toronto Raptors, right? And uh, has a facility in Vancouver as well. We hit it off when he started to talk to me about proximal to distal management of the human body. And I brought this mm. cognitively across into this kinosomic development of sciences, what we're looking at, to know that if the core is central to the equation for human movement, managing that will give us greater force production at the foot, it will give us greater distal velocity um, in the, at the hand level of the hand. There's so many things it could potentially give us. And to that point, I've used it as probably the most predominant cue I'll give an athlete during the course of something going wrong kinematically where they can't find it is recenter, draw the navel into the spine. If you just do that alone, let everything take care of itself. And again, I couldn't agree more with you. You've probably heard me a lot of times say to the athletes, um, you know, keep keep your core activated, keep it activated. Yeah. You know, a lot of times when they do yep. movements, they just disengage the core and focus on keeping your core activated. And then you get a different output from all the different muscles around it. I couldn't agree more. And look, we're in an era, mate, um, just in wrapping up, we're in an era of incredible amount of injury in athletes uh, in Major League Baseball. And it it, it stuns me to the point of, you know, I'm getting calls from Major League teams and media around what's the solution here? Um, What are you seeing? Do you think, firstly, like that concept of bioanalytics as the next money ball and Mm. reducing injury rates um, do you see that impacting the sport? Well, yes, it's challenging. I mean, I can only comment from the outside looking in. You know, I, mm. I, at one stage I was on the inside, so I have a, have yeah. a bit of an understanding of of how things operate um, and, and, right. and how athletes, they're all trying to be the best and they're all trying to do everything they can to mitigate injuries. So it's not about yeah. the athlete's effort. It's not about the athlete's desire. Um, I'm sure they're doing all they can. But... You know, from the outside looking in, there seems to be a bit of a gap somewhere. Yeah. You know, with with the injuries, I'm I'm not sure. Um, you know, Major League Baseball and the players' union are doing all they can to have better rest for athletes. Mm-hmm. There's more rest than there used to be. The, the diet's better than it used to be. The, the medical teams are better than they used to be. But there's still issues with injuries. From the outside looking in, the gaps seem to be getting bigger. So. Obviously, when when you're in that space and you're outside looking in, you always think you always think there's a solution. You know, you always think that you know. And again, I can only speak through our experience at AIS, where yep, you know, our players were pulling up very sore. You know, our mm-hmm. players were pulling up very sore, and that clearly identified to the athlete. When you show an athlete, you know, a shortfall in their athleticism or a shortfall in their ability or this or their skill work, and then you show them a way to fix it, you know. 
the athletes we're talking about, that's their life. They, they, they'll pour everything into it. Yeah, I, I don't know. There seems to be a gap somewhere, you know, on the outside looking in. Identify the problem, provide solutions, but we don't, like, I'm no longer inside of Major League Baseball either. Sometimes they, it, sometimes it's not educational. Sometimes it is political roadblocks. Sometimes there are personnel roadblocks. And we understand that. And ironically, with Baseball Australia, you've got the model that I kind of want for everyone worldwide. And that is an athlete-centric model. The best interest for that athlete, and I think you've led this from coming from that domain, from being a player, leading the system development around an athlete-centric model is the only way I think we'll see baseball evolution. Yeah, look, it's it's very challenging. I have a lot of freedom here, you know, yeah. to do what I to really do what I want. I have athletes that are right. motivated to get better and. You know, they want to play in the national team. So, you know, there's a lot of freedom there. And I would imagine, again, from the outside looking in, I'd imagine that major league clubs, it's challenging because much like breaking through how they used to teach hitting and, and other yeah. parts of the game 10 or 15 years ago, there has to be a thought breakthrough and right. and someone has to champion that cause and lead that cause and be willing to take criticism and be willing to be mocked and be willing to go on a journey that's going to take three to five years to turn around how things are done. So, you know, I guess until someone in leadership with the major league team feels the need to do that and go on that journey, probably I don't yeah. know if there'd be a change. Yeah, it's like it was like that one line in Moneyball, you know, the first one through the wall is always the bloodiest. So I think it just sums that up. All right, mate, in wrapping up, I'm going to put you on the spot. I got two questions. Which pitcher did you own? In Major League Baseball, you like you looked at the lineup card, and said, "Okay, I'm going to have a day here." Who was it? Name him and tell me why. I don't like the question, first of all, because <laughs> I know you don't. That's why I asked. <laughs> I don't. I don't like the question, but there are two guys that yep. I had very high level success against, and I was really uncomfortable if they weren't comfortable at bats, and I. Probably prefer not to face them. Mm. And they're extreme. One was Kevin Brown from oh, yeah. Texas and the Dodgers. Yeah. The Padres. Big, high-velocity sinker, slider, cutter, split. Just a real beast on the mound. He was uncomfortable. Um, and in the wash-up, wash my numbers are really good against him. Wow. Um, wow. The second guy was uh, polar opposite, was a guy... Um, Tim Wakefield, knuckleball pitcher oh, yeah. for the Boston Red Sox. Yep. I enjoyed a lot of success against those two. I'm sure I'm sure there's more. I mean I know there's more, but but you know, to answer your question, the numbers against those two athletes are pretty pretty good. Um, and I think I'll just just leave it there. Um, there was another okay. <clears throat> Another pitcher I had some success with the long ball against pretty consistently, but um, I just don't want to mention his name. Most of these guys too much respect. I mean, yeah, I don't know no, what I, I don't know. You. I don't see. I don't see the upside of saying anything. No, um, I'll, bad I'll, about I'll give anyone. you. I'll give you the easier one now. Who owned your ass at the plate? Who owned it? Clemens. Who was, who was so Clemens. My buddy Roger. Yeah, and and again I um. I didn't know it, you know, before every game in the clubhouse, before every series, I had to, back then they have the printout of all the stats yeah. and all the matchups and all that. And, you know, I think I was 
one for 20 or one, you know, I, I don't know, just um, him. And I tell you, the other guy, um, closer for the New York Yankees and a closer for the Texas Rangers. And I tell you, uh, and I, I just, I cannot believe I've forgotten his name. And the reason why mm. um, I just could never, I felt really comfortable, but I, he just owned me. I, I couldn't get him out. He was a closer. And, mm. I, and I, sure enough, I make the all-star team in, in 99. And I sit around, I get my at-bat. Who do you think's pitching against me? <laughs> there he is. And I, ha- I have like a 14, 15 pitch at-bat and he strikes me out. And I just, um, yeah, it was it was surreal. I was just, you know, here I'm in my first All-Star game and I'm just kind of laughing, walking up the plate going, you know, for, you know, give me give me anyone else. Just give me anyone else. Just don't give me give me that guy. So um, I would have preferred to face Pedro or, or Schilling or anyone like that. Oh, just I not, get it. Not this guy because I know he's going to get me out. Mate, you've had some stunning moments in your athletic career and I've been fortunate to enjoy some on your managerial side and um, your thought process certainly has impacted mine in terms of looking at key performance indicators and tying them, those technical aspects, into the physical systems and developing hopefully athletes for you that you you can turn the key on day-to-day basis and and we can run them out there and we can have 100% availability as often as possible. So um, for that and the opportunity to learn from you, to enjoy this journey with my second time around with the Australian national team, um, it's been just eye-opening. And like, I'm not trying to blow smoke here, mate, but I get to meet a lot of people and a lot of pretty powerful names in professional sports and mate you're still at the top of my list i still have your bobblehead on my uh on my <laughs> shelf here um to that uh, end i look mate it's just, just thank you because it's been an enlightening journey for me you've made me better as a performance coach through your accessibility to your mind and i can't thank you enough for that um it's an honor to always work with you and like in Australia, we know the country of Australia knows how important you are um, mm. as an ambassador to who we are as not only a sport, but as a nation. Um, mate, your journey, as much as you may think it's in the rear vision mirror, I think it's just as long in the, in the, in the front vision right now. So thank you. No, thanks, really thanks, Gary. I appreciate your... Your kind words. Um, obviously, I feel the same way. Every time we're together, there's a lot of energy between the two of us, and I, I, I enjoy where our conversations go, which I never know where they're going to go, but I, I enjoy them. You always have me, um, you know, searching for stuff and talking through stuff. So it's a two-way street, and and again, hopefully, hopefully there is is a lot before us. You know, there's a, there's there's a lot, lot more to do out there, and I think. I think we're just scratching the surface. So, um, yeah, mate, thank, thanks again. I've really enjoyed this time and um, anything I can do in the future to help, you know, I'm always here. Mate, you'll be one of my first calls, no worries. So, Dave, thank you. This this is a journey that we're on together. It's why we call this the Kinesome Project, right? It's a project. I mean, we, we don't know what we don't know. And I, our goal is to simply ask better questions. And thank you for listening to the Human Kinesome Project. I look forward to joining you in a live conversation at discord.com.gg slash kinetics. Our music, as always, is created by the infinitely talented Joanna Magic. Okay, team. 
game is just beginning.